Well, what comes to your mind when I say the word patience? What images are conjured up uh, from your life experience daily, I would imagine? Maybe are we there yet? Questions on road trips? Maybe an MRBC children's church worker with a tranquil look while noisy toddlers clamor all around. In our day of instant gratification, the word patience likely calls to mind just your experience in a drive-thru. You're waiting for some good or service uh, that you want. Those things certainly involve patience. They require patience. But the ability and willingness to wait in those circumstances or the ability and willingness to endure in those moments is really a fraction of how the scriptures portray patience in the life of a believer. The patience that is the fruit of the Spirit is much more than self-control while we wait in line for our Starbucks or wherever else you frequent. Biblical terminology for patience refers to much more than self-control during momentary inconvenience. That is patience. Exercising self-control or maybe a lack of self-control during momentary moments of inconvenience, that demonstrates a lack of patience. But patience is much, much bigger than that. The biblical references to patience don't refer to isolated moments, but all of life. The disposition that a Christian has towards the life we've been called to live while we await the return of our Savior. There are a handful of words used that describe patience in Scripture. And these terms denote forbearance, long-suffering, perseverance, endurance, and steadfastness. Now, just to test yourself, the next time that you're feeling impatient in a traffic jam or at Starbucks, and you're saying, I'm losing my patience, or I feel impatient, insert some of those words I just read. Use those to describe your experience. And my guess is you'll back away from the, the ledge pretty quickly. Is it really forbearance and long-suffering when we're waiting in line for something that we're overpaying to receive and enjoy? No, right? The biblical perspective on patience is much deeper, much more all-encompassing. The terms mean self-restraint when enduring difficulty from others and endurance through genuinely trying circumstances. Biblical, passive, or biblical patience, long-suffering, long-temperedness should not be confused with passivity or laziness. Just because certain things don't bother you doesn't mean that you're exercising biblical patience. I just said the terms, but biblical patience is long-temperedness. It's bearing with difficult people and bearing up under difficult, challenging circumstances. And it's not used to describe our reactions to mere rare moments in life, but it's a fruit of the Spirit that is to characterize our disposition toward the entirety of the Christian life. Biblical patience is all-encompassing. And the reason that's the case is because this life is full of trouble. Life as a Christian in this world is full of difficulties, disappointments, frustrations, things that are unplanned, unexpected, unwelcome. So we rightly ask, well, if that's the case and that's what life is like here, the life that the Lord has called us to live is full of trouble, what is the disposition of a Christian? What are we... What are we to do about these things? And what is our outlook to be? How do we deal with such things in a way that pleases Christ? And scripture is clear. We must endure this life. 
We must run the race set before us, the author of Hebrews says, with patience, with long-suffering. We must have a long-suffering, long-tempered attitude in life as God works his will in us through the frustrations of ordinary life, as he conforms us to the image of Christ, making us fit for eternity. The passage that we're going to study today, originally addressed to believers facing very difficult circumstances and painful challenges, points us to a life of steady perseverance. Please take your Bibles and find James chapter 5. James chapter 5. I went to seminary to learn that James was written by James. Not just any James, James the brother of our Lord. And the leader of the Jerusalem church. We read about his ministry and certain portions in Acts. This was likely a very early New Testament letter. He tells us that he's writing to the diaspora or the Jewish Christians that had been dispersed and were now living outside the land of Israel. Throughout the letter, James addresses all manner of circumstances. He addresses those who are facing hardship and various trials dealing with persecution, but he, he also deals with a number of character issues. So even though these circumstances and the challenges of life are always in the backdrop, he addresses character issues in his hearers. The tongue is addressed, jealousy, bitterness, selfish ambition, quarreling and conflict in the body, favoritism shown to the wealthy and the poor, coveting the wealthy and the wealthy oppressing the poor. In fact, that's what's in the most immediate context in James 5, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11, but above that, in verses 1 through 6, he deals very directly, very straightforwardly, even harshly with the wealthy who were mistreating the poor. And as he transitions in verse 7, it seems that he still has this group of mistreated believers in mind as he says, therefore, be patient, brethren. Life was hard for them. And having denounced the oppression of the rich in the verses before, even reminding the rich in verse 3 that your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. You're, this is, you're storing up treasure and the last days are here. It's, it's foolish for you to be focused on that. But the last days are in his mind. And now he turns his attention in verse 7 to how the faithful must endure through the last days ultimately telling them to persevere with expectant patience. Persevere with expectant patience. Now, as we read 7 through 11, I want you to note a few things that I think will help you grasp just the overall thrust of James in this text. First are just a couple of important themes. The section begins with one term for patience, and then yes, it's translated patience, therefore be patient. And then it ends with a nearly synonymous term that's translated endurance. Down in verse 11, you see those who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job. And while these are distinct terms, they're closely related. The ESV translates endurance as steadfast and steadfastness. So three times in verses 7 through 8, he refers to patience. And then twice, again, in verse 11, he talks about endurance. So that theme runs throughout this section of Scripture. That's his concern. Also note that the return of the Lord is referred to three times in this short section. 
The end of verse 7, he says, until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, the end of verse 8, for the coming of the Lord is near. Verse 9, the judge is standing right at the door. So the theme of this section is clearly steadfastness or long-suffering in view of the coming of Christ. And James structures this section, there are actually five commands or directives in this very short passage. And interwoven with those commands, he gives illustrations, examples, and he also gives reasons for actually obeying or motivation for obeying the commands that he's given. So all this kind of tightly packed together and the tenor of this passage then is urgent responsibility on our part. Basically, in light of the Lord's nearness, you and I need to obey these precepts and his original hearers are, ta- are taught this responsibility. They need to obey. The Lord is near. So that tone runs throughout. So follow along as I read James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. We're going to organize our study of this passage around four pearls of wisdom that direct stable perseverance. Let me tell you why that's our organization. Well, first, James begins his letter by declaring that God gives wisdom. And then he describes the type of person who should ask or may ask sometimes, but actually doesn't get, shouldn't expect anything from God. That person is one who doesn't actually look to God consistently for wisdom amidst life's difficulties. He doesn't look to God for instruction about how to endure life and to obey. James says he or she is like a wave, driven and tossed by the wind, unstable, constantly wavering. In contrast, the instruction in our passage They direct us in stable, unwavering perseverance. And it's been said that throughout James, he sets forth wisdom like stringing pearls together on a necklace. If you've read through James, you know it's almost like Proverbs. And so picking up with that, thus we have four pearls of wisdom that direct stable perseverance. Our first pearl comes in verses 7 and 8, and that is we're called to cultivate Hopeful long-suffering until the end. Hopeful long-suffering until the end. Again, verse 7, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. James begins this section of his letter with a double command for patience or long-temperedness. And then in the middle, he gives an illustration. So he sandwiches this illustration of patience together with two commands that both say, very straightforwardly, be patient. He says, here's a command to be patient. Here's a motivation for continued patience. Here's an illustration of patience. Also, be patient. Right? He gets his point across. 
As we noted at the outset, patience should be thought of as long-temperedness, long-suffering. So what James is calling for here, again, is much more than the momentary self-control in the face of inconvenience. He's referring to the entire Christian outlook amidst the challenges of life. Our manner of life, says James here, is to be one of long-suffering, of forbearance. Interestingly, though, he tells us that there's an end to that forbearance. There's an end to that patience. And no, it's not the length of your fuse, or it's not how thin your patients are wearing, as we say. The end of the need to show forbearance and long-suffering and long-temperedness is the coming of Christ. He says, be patient or be long-suffering, brethren, until, until the coming of the Lord. And here what he does is he gives a motivation for continued long-temperedness in this life. He points to the coming of Jesus, which is a, would be a time of relief, a time of reward, a time when the struggles of this life would end. And he says, that's the motivation. Be patient, brethren, until then. There is an end. The end of your need to be long-suffering, long-tempered, forbearing is coming. And it's when Christ comes back. Coming here denotes his personal presence when he returns, when the resurrected Lord Jesus returns to take his people to himself. And we're gathered together with him and those who have died in the Lord and we're all together with him in his presence always. This coming is the consummation of salvation. It's been said for a long time. I think B.F. Westcott was the first to say it, right? You were saved, you are saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. Those are all aspects of salvation in the New Testament. We refer to it in past tense, present tense, ongoing as we're sanctified, and we refer to it in the future tense. And sometimes we forget that part. You have not been fully and finally redeemed yet. What you've believed in the gospel has not been fully and finally consummated, but it will be when the Lord comes back. Those who've been saved by faith, the Lord Jesus Christ will be fully and finally saved when he returns. And that is the, the, what's to be kept in view as we carry out this life seeking to be long-suffering, long-tempered. Notice that just by referencing the coming of the Lord in this very early epistle, James didn't need to say any more about it. He didn't need to say any more about Jesus' return for his hearers to understand what he was talking about than to call it the coming of the Lord. It wasn't a mysterious lesser part of their theology. It was something that they were familiar with. It wouldn't have been a motivation otherwise. He just says it, the coming of the Lord. In fact, James shows us here the way he refers to it multiple times in such a short amount of time, emphasizing how they're to live in light of it. It shows us that really that was the primary source of comfort for this troubled people facing challenges. What motivation would they have to be long-suffering, long-tempered? Well, the Lord is coming back. And with him, his reward That's the motivation. That's the basis for patience. Notice that it's timing in relation to other events didn't matter. Other eschatological details didn't matter. The sheer fact of the Lord's future coming was to be a sanctifying agent in the lives of these believers. And it's to be in our lives as well. Based on James' usage of the coming here, we see that this is what sustains long-suffering in the life of the believer. 
Those songs we just sang, Turn Our Eyes to Jesus, really, right? We're looking forward, of course, to his comforting presence now, but more than that, to his return, to his ultimate presence when he is with us physically and we are with him. That is what sustains us. The knowledge that an end of this period of long suffering is coming sustains us now. Now, James gives an illustration of this just to drive, drive this point home. He essentially says in the second part of verse 7, look at the farmer and be like him. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. And look at this farm over here. That's, that's what, how I want you to live while you wait on the Lord. It's the second part of verse 7. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. It's just an illustration of patience. It's not an allegory for the entirety of the Christian life, so don't get lost in searching for deeper meanings of the early and late rains and assigning anything significant to those. He's just pointing to an illustration that's been readily available in an agrarian society. There's a farmer. Look at how he's going to be patient. You be just like that. So it's a farmer in ancient Palestine, faithful to do the work of cultivation, but he's dependent upon the Lord ultimately to bring about the fruit that he's waiting on, right? He needs the rain to prepare the soil, the rain that nourishes the crop. Ultimately, he puts in the work, he's steadfast, but he has to be long-suffering while he waits on the purposes of the Lord to ultimately produce this precious fruit. James tells us the point of giving this illustration in the first part of verse 8. You also be patient, right? That's it. You also be patient. Like the farmer waits patiently until the precious fruit, we are to wait patiently. We are to demonstrate long-suffering. We are to live with long-temperedness until the Lord comes. And in the farmer's illustration and in the commands paired with the motivation, we see that our long-suffering, our long-temperedness is conditioned by hopeful expectation. Notice that James doesn't hold out hope of immediate relief. He doesn't tell these believers that were being oppressed by the poor that their mistreatment would end soon necessarily. He doesn't tell them that their lives would shortly become more comfortable, more easy. He simply points to the reward of eternity as the focus of the perseverance that he calls them to. And he says, persevere expectantly, looking forward to the presence of Christ. That's to be a comfort to us. It's to motivate our long-temperedness in this life. Just consider for a moment all you're called to endure in this life that will end at his coming. No more persecution. No more disappointments. No more physical suffering of any kind. No more sin. No more sin from others against us. No more of your sin against others. No more sin, period. No more internal wrestling. When all of that ends, so will our need to exercise long suffering. There won't be anything left to suffer longly. And that is to give us hope, it is to motivate our endurance as we look to Jesus and we long for that day, we're motivated in continuance in patience now. As he moves on through verse eight, we find a second pearl of wisdom and it's similar yet distinct. That is that to live a life of stable perseverance, we need to prepare to endure because the end is near. 
James says that we need to prepare to endure because the end is near. His arrival. Verse 8, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Heart refers to the whole inner being, the seat of desires, emotions, feelings. If you've been in this church for any amount of time, you've heard it said repeatedly from this front, and I'm going to say it again, the heart is mission control center. That's where it is. That's the seat of who you are. James is referring to our inner life when he says strengthen your hearts. Now the term for strengthen denotes resolve, toughness, constancy, determination. It's the same word that's used in Luke chapter 9 that refers to Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem. It's the term that's used when our Savior sets his face in determination to go carry out the saving task that his Father sent him to carry out in his death and then his resurrection. It's that type of resolve and determination. An older English version translates James' command here as, be stout-hearted. I like that. Be stout-hearted. Other portions of the New Testament refer to God's work of strengthening using this same terminology. They refer to God's actions in that. It's a, it's a response to prayer. We pray to be strengthened. Uh, the writers talk about God doing that work of strengthening. But here, James emphasizes our responsibility in this. This is a command. You be strengthened in your inner man. He's commanding us really to a, a committed inner life that's firmly resolute, a settled disposition of courage amidst life's challenges. So we ask, how are we to do this? What basis do we have for this outlook? How could we possibly be encouraged and strengthened in our inner man as we look and see what is going on all around us, what we're facing, what we're enduring? And both questions are answered by James in verse 8. The reason he tells us that we are to be strengthened is that the coming of the Lord is near. The motivation, the basis for our strengthening is that the coming of the Lord is near. Just like above, where his coming is a motive for long-temperedness, here it's a motive for steady, committed, resolved, resolute, steel in the spine, faithfulness, perseverance. He points to the nearness of the Lord's coming and says, be encouraged. His coming is near. See, how do we strengthen our hearts with issues? We set our minds on the things above. We remind ourselves regularly of what James is reminding his readers and us about now, and that is that the coming of the Lord is near, and that is to be a strengthening influence in our hearts. We're told that this coming is near in verse 8 and then verse 9 in a different way, but its nearness is stressed also when he says the judge is standing right at the door. And sometimes the, the term near can create like cognitive dissonance with us as we look at it and go, well, wait a minute, Myra, wasn't this written like 2,000 years ago? And the answer is yes, it was written almost 2,000 years ago. And so did James mean near when he said that the coming of the Lord is near? And the answer is yes, he did. And he wasn't wrong. I want to talk about that for just a minute. We realize that James was written a long time ago, and yet we see that James, like all the other New Testament authors, refer to the Lord's coming as imminent and near. 
One so-called solution, so-called is important, this is no solution, has been to say that, well, the apostles and the earliest Christians, they were, they were convinced that Jesus would return in, in their lifetime. But when that didn't happen, they concealed their disappointment and spoke of his coming as this sort of indeterminate future thing. But that's an unacceptable perspective if we maintain the veracity and truthfulness of Scripture. God's word says his coming is imminent and that his coming is near. So what are we to make of this? Well, first, when we consider the Bible's teaching about Christ's return and imminence, we find that the predominant focus of the teaching is on preparing men and women for that return, not on, not on the timing of his return. In fact, we're told just the opposite of the timing. We're told that it's impossible to know the time and that because of that, you're always to be ready for it. Jesus said, watch for you know neither the day nor the hour, right? The genius of imminence in God's economy is that his people are always supposed to be ready, always supposed to be watchful. That's what's commanded. He didn't tell us it's going to happen after all of these other things and after this particular amount of time transpires, so kind of hold on until then and then get ready, right? No. It was imminence. It was watchfulness always because no one knows the end of the hour. That was on purpose. The teaching of his coming has always been to inspire and to cultivate watchfulness. And we know how this works, right? No one prepares for a guest a year before they come, right? You don't get dressed for church on Friday night, okay? I, I don't think, right? Like, we don't know when he's coming. It could be today. It could be a thousand years from now. Scripture says it's near and we're to be watchful. Additionally, if we consider all of history along a timeline of redemption, a biblical timeline, we see that the Bible refers to the period of time that began with Jesus' ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit in Acts 2 as the last days. Sometimes we're asked, do you believe, you know, I'm asked, do you believe we're living in the last days? And the answer is, of course. And John did in the 90s when he said, children, it is the last hour. And Paul did before that when he talks about this being the last days. We are living in the last days. And so has every, have been every Christian since Christ's ascension and Pentecost and the pouring out of the Spirit. That is the, the epic, the time in which we live, the last days. The Lord's return has been the next event on God's redemptive timeline since these last days began. And in that sense, it's always and continues to be near, imminent. I think it helps to compare our perspective living in these last days just briefly to that of Abraham or Moses. It's different for us. Those men hoped for something far off and unseen and they were not living in the last days. The return of Christ and the consummation of God's redemptive plan was not the next thing on the horizon for those men. Do you see the difference? We live in the last days. That is what is to come. And it's been near from the moment that the Lord went back to the right hand of the Father and poured out his spirit on the church. So Christians from those very first converts in Acts 2, all the way until the very last convert whose eyes are open just before the shout of the archangel, we all will live, have lived, and will live near to Christ's coming. James says it's near and that that's to strengthen us. That's to encourage us. 
he, in these words, has no tolerance for a passive Christian life. But he doesn't call us to fortitude for fortitude's sake, right? He tells us we have something we can base that fortitude on. And again, I'm belaboring the point because James repeats it three times. It's the Lord's coming. He gives us cause for our inner resolve. And it's that he is near. It's like a runner, right, that summons new strength internally as he sees the finish line. Or what we reflect sometimes when we just urge people on in various activities, keep going, you're almost there. It's, it's that idea. That's the sense. The end is near. Be strengthened. Jesus reflects something of this idea in Luke 21, 28, when he says, when these things begin to take place, and he's referring to those things that pretend is coming. He says, straighten up and lift your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Straighten up and lift your heads. That's encouragement. That's hope. We live in the last days. We're to be looking. Our redemption is drawing near. General Douglas MacArthur was famous, some would say infamous, for standing tall in the line of fire. Tales of his bravery as he stands there addressing his men while bullets are whizzing by on all sides and they're hitting the deck and he's standing there with his corncob pipe looking off in the, the way of danger. Uh, he was noted for that courage and men give testimony to seeing him in that situation and being strengthened as they look and they saw him, they took courage. And as we look and we see that our Savior is near, it's to be a source of strength that we're to draw upon. And that strength then enables us to persevere, to persevere in long-suffering. After exhorting patience and then exhorting this resolve, the next command is somewhat unexpected. James turns his attention once again to the tongue. Look at verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another. In these words, we have our third pearl of wisdom, and that is stop groaning so you won't be judged. Stop groaning so you won't be judged. Verse 9, do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves will not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Here, James prohibits complaining about one another. Groaning, sighing about one another is the literal term. It means to express frustration and maybe internally first, but here, based on his command, it spills over. It can be against one another. It's actually the term used that, was, that is used by the writer of the Hebrews in the passage that I read earlier in our service, where he says, let your leaders do so in a way where, where they're not, they don't have grief. It's the same word. Saying, you know, conduct yourselves in the congregation in such a way that your leaders aren't being brought to sighing and groaning about you. And here, same term, he says, don't complain, don't groan, don't grumble against one another. Earlier in James' letter, he cautioned against the dangers of the tongue. Then in chapter 4, he addresses harmful hurtful speech, slanderous speech against one another. In this section, I believe that James is prohibiting an impatient tongue. This isn't unconnected to what he's talking about. He's been exhorting long-suffering, long-tempering in the face of challenges. Complaining against others is in contrast with a long-suffering temperament, right? 
If our immediate context is a clue in verses 1 through 6, then this group of believers has been exhorted to endure through challenges that are being brought to them by others. They have a hard situation, and they may have been tempted to then vent their frustrations at one another, to start chewing on one another because of the pressure that they were all under. And that grumbling, that groaning, that complaining is not a fruit of patience or steadfastness. It's just the opposite. It's not hard to imagine that response when facing mistreatment. We all know what it's like. It's a shared human experience in sin to know what it's like to have pressure in our lives increase and then to start lashing out at others in impatience. That's really what he's dealing with here, and he's talking about that within the body of Christ. This can look like expressing what you expected from others but didn't receive, groaning about your disappointments or perceived slights, all of those things. And those are not speech that flows from a heart of forbearance or a heart of long-suffering. Sinclair Ferguson notes that grumbling is the thing that has destroyed more churches than anything else in history. Grumbling has destroyed more churches than heresy. It's somewhat shocking, but I think he's right. It's detrimental. It's very serious. And thus, James motivates obedience to this command with a very serious warning. The threat of judgment. Again, verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Just to be clear that he's not talking about some faction of unbelievers that got into the the body and he's addressing them. No, this is a warning to Christians. He calls them brethren, and then he says specifically, you yourselves, you yourselves don't complain, don't groan, so that you won't be judged. What he's saying is that groaning against one another is sinful. It doesn't contribute to steadfastness, and it certainly won't withstand the examination of the coming judge. Believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul teaches us that in 2 Corinthians. He tells us that because of that, we're to be motivated to carry out our lives in fearful awe. Holiness is motivated by the prospect of standing before the Lord. And that's a similar idea to what James is saying here. He's warning believers against groaning and grumbling because we're going to stand before the judge. He's going to examine our works, our words, our lives. Not ultimately for whether or not one will be saved, but for whether one has been fruitful in this life, whether one has been obedient. And James says the judge is at the door. Don't complain so that you're not judged for your complaining. I think it's important that we, we see this. Sometimes our theology can become eccentric and we can like theologize ourselves out of such warnings, right? We know, of course, James has already said that it's the Lord who brought forth salvation. And in the very next verses, he's going to emphasize God's compassion and mercy. So James didn't need to be reminded of the gospel. He didn't need to be reminded of free grace and forgiveness. He warns believers and us, that we're to obey because the judge is standing at the door. He sees no need to remove any of the teeth of this warning by explaining how we're all perfect already in Jesus, that we don't need to fear judgment if we're forgiven, or that the judgment seat is really just the place where everyone gets a trophy. That's not what he's talking about. 
the coming judge is to make us fearfully obedient. And that accords with what we see throughout Scripture. When Paul talks about the judgment seat of Christ as a motive for holiness and holy ministry, he does so without diminishing God's amazing grace one bit. Jesus encourages faithfulness amongst his people with parables saying that there will be a future inspection for our stewardship. John admonishes us to holiness so that when we see Jesus face to face, we don't back away in shame. And that's what James is pointing out here. And of course, we know that God has not commanded us to do anything that he hasn't enabled us to do by his spirit. But his wisdom is clear and to the point. Stop grumbling and groaning about one another in the face of your challenges. Stop being impatient in your speech at one another in the body so that you're not afraid to open the door to greet the judge when he knocks. So James has said, be patient. And he uses the coming of the Lord as motivation. He said, strengthen your inner life. And he uses the nearness of the Lord's coming as motivation. And now he warns against sinful responses towards others and uses the Lord's future coming as an impetus for holiness. And this mature understanding sees both aspects of the Lord's coming as important for our lives in the here and now. It's a comfort to us as we face challenges. It motivates us in long-suffering and long-temperedness. And it reminds us that we need to be holy, that our holy Savior is coming back to get us, and we want to be prepared to meet him and to receive the examination that he will give toward his children or to his children. And we're reminded by all of these things in James that the Lord's coming is not this remote future thing that has nothing to do with how you and I live every day, but it is integral to your faithfulness and my faithfulness. And in this context to our long-tempered disposition toward lives, uh, toward life and its challenges. So what about this groaning? Well, the difficulties of our lives can make it, make us prone really to groan against one another. And, and I, that leads then to discouraging one another from continuing in steadfastness along this course. Nobody's encouraged to stay in the race and run it patiently by grumbling and groaning. Right? You and I don't encourage one another to persevere when we're groaning against one another. One theologian says this, and this stings a little bit. He says, we're easily hurt. We pout and mope easily. We blame easily. We break easily. Our marriages break easily. Our faith breaks easily. Our happiness breaks easily. Our commitment to the church breaks easily. We're easily disheartened. And it seems we have little capacity for surviving and thriving in the face of criticism and opposition. A typical emotional response to trouble in the church is to think, if that's the way they feel about me, then I'll just find another church. James calls us to perseverance, and that this perseverance with expectant patience includes our relationships. We encourage one another with our long-tempered attitudes and avoid discouraging one another with grumbling and groaning because the judge is standing right at the door. And this whole section on persevering with expectant patience is now rounded out with a command for believers to consider examples of others who have patiently endured. Our fourth and final pearl of wisdom that directs our stable perseverance is simply consider the examples of patient 
steadfastness. Consider examples of patient steadfastness. This command, at least in the NASB, is in the word take. That's an imperative. He's saying, take this example. It's instructive. So he's calling us to consider examples. He gives us two distinct examples. He gives the prophets in verse 10 as examples of patience amidst suffering. And then he gives the example of Job as an example of one who persevered and was blessed by the Lord. So the prophets and then Job. The prophets, he in, when he gives them as an example, he emphasizes their long-suffering, the same long-suffering that he's prescribed earlier in our passage. And he points out, he says, they are the prophets who spoke the name of the Lord. And what he points out there is that they suffered for doing the Lord's will. So in their example, he says, look at their long-suffering. They were doing the Lord's will, speaking the Lord's word, even persecuted for the very words that they said on behalf of the Lord. And yet consider their example and their long-suffering amidst that challenge. And then he points out Job. And for Job, he emphasizes the whole of Job's life, the story that we know from beginning to end, not so much highlighting Job's response, although he did persevere, but highlighting the Lord's dealings with Job in mercy and compassion. In keeping with what we see in most of the New Testament, James identifies the prophets as those who are persecuted, as those who are persecuted. Perhaps most memorably, Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Now, doesn't that sound like verses seven through nine? And then he says, for in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. James makes clear again that the suffering of the prophets was a result of their faithfulness. And that's an encouragement to all believers who suffer as a result of their faithfulness. He says, look to their example, how they endured with patience. You and I can find examples of this throughout the prophets. Many of us will think of Jeremiah who endured much mistreatment. James says, look to them. Be encouraged in your long suffering while you await your reward. As he transitions to Job in verse 11, he notes something that he expects his hearers to know. He says, we count those blessed who endured. Right? He says, those who persevere will be blessed. And so he's rounding out what he had commanded early in the letter. Listen to verse 12 of chapter one. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So he says, look at the prophets. Look at how they had long suffering in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their persecution. Then he says, consider that those who persevere are blessed. And then he gives us the example of Job. He says, you've heard of the endurance of Job. They've heard of, right? It's just a little insight. They had obviously knew the story of Job. They knew their Old Testament, this early church. They knew Job. He's relying on them understanding Job to teach this lesson. And we do well to see likewise the story of Job. Now, what is he emphasizing with Job? Well, he's not emphasizing Job's example in every instance of patience and, and not groaning and being strengthened in heart. 
he's addressing the entirety of Job's life, the story that we see, because he says it's the Lord's dealings, the outcome of the Lord's dealings. That's ultimately what we take away from Job, right? Of course, he endured this unimaginable hardship because he was, of course, strengthened by the Lord over time. But we see the story is that the Lord was working his purposes in Job. And that's what James points out. So we, we don't have to worry about trying to make this jive with the commands because surely when Job called his counselors windbags and said that they were miserable counselors, he could be accused of groaning, right? But the whole picture of Job's life is ultimately one of perseverance. And at the end of the story, what's emphasized? God's merciful dealings with Job. He blesses Job. He brought Job through. And we know that he's an example of James 1 that God perfects those whom he brings through trials. Job endured, and we had the privilege of seeing God's merciful and compassionate dealings in maturing Job. That's then what he says we're to consider. Consider those who have endured. Different word than long-suffering, but highly related, almost synonymous. Listen, he said, look at to those, rather, who have endured, and consider the endurance of Job. And look at the outcome of the Lord's dealings. What motivates our steadfastness, our perseverance with expectant patience? It's looking at examples like Job and seeing the Lord's compassionate mercy working his purposes in his children. So prophets, the prophets are an example to us when we're challenged by an increasingly hostile culture when we're tempted to not endure suffering for speaking in the name of the Lord, for being faithful to the things the Lord has called us to. And Job is an example of blessed endurance, blessed perseverance, and of God's merciful dealings in the life of his children. This is a stout five verses of Scripture. But we need these exhortations. I need these pearls of wisdom from James. You need these pearls of wisdom from James. We need to be reminded of our Lord's coming. We need to remind one another of our Lord's coming. And we need to do so with the same purposes that James had in mind, to strengthen hearts, to encourage one another, not in passivity toward this life, but in long-temperedness to encourage one another in holiness as we look heavenward with expectant patience. We need these reminders primarily because our own sin causes us to doubt and to grumble, but also because the environment in which we live fosters a natural impatience and a natural nearsightedness. John Piper says this, when historians list the character traits of America in the last third of the 20th century, commitment, constancy, tenacity, endurance, patience, resolve, and perseverance will not be on the list. The list will begin with an all-consuming interest in self-esteem. It will be followed by the subheadings of self-assertiveness, self-enhancement, and self-realization. And if we think We are not children of our times. Let us simply test ourselves to see how we respond when people reject our ideas or spurn our good efforts or misconstrue our best intentions. We all need help here. 
we're surrounded by and are a part of a society of emotionally fragile quitters. If we're honest, we'll admit that we can all be tempted toward that disposition. And James teaches us that one spoonful of medicine to the sickness of being emotionally fragile quitter is to strengthen our hearts with fresh awareness of the Lord's return, to strengthen our hearts, to strengthen our resolve toward long-temperedness with consistent awareness of the nearness of Christ. He's near. The judge is at the door, and we're called to endure until he comes. May the Lord give us strength to do that, do that with one another, do that alongside one another, to encourage one another in that.